Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Blue Conics President and COO, Corey Munchback. Corey has spent her career on the cutting edge of marketing technology and brings years working with Fortune 500 clients from various industries to Blue Conic. Before joining the Blue Crew, she was an analyst at Forrester Research, where she covered business and consumer technology trends and the fast-moving marketing tech landscape. A sought-after speaker and industry voice, Corey's work has been featured in VentureBeat, Wired, AdAge, AdWeek, as well as she's spoken at conferences such as FutureM, MITx and the Association of National Advertisers. A lifelong Bostonian, Corey has a bachelor's degree in political science from Boston College, spends a considerable amount of her non-work hours on various volunteer and philanthropic initiatives in the greater Boston community. So Corey, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, looking forward to this. So a lifelong Bostonian, and as I was just reminded, where my dad says he grew up in Boston, he didn't. He grew up like an hour away. <laughs> what keeps you in Boston? You know, it's funny, um, not necessarily anything specific. Uh, I had a lot of uh, opportunities and chances to go elsewhere. I thought I'd go to college somewhere else. I thought I would take a job in California at one point. And just through kind of various moments of serendipity have decided to stay put. And one of the things that I've come to appreciate about that, um, actually from a podcast, if you know how I built this with Guy Raz, he had on one of the co-founders of Allbirds a couple of years ago. And he was talking about just how much there is to building a brand or a project, whatever it might be locally and talking Mm. about the context of the material that they use for the Allbirds. Um, And that really, really resonated with me is this opportunity to sort of focus in. I like to do a lot and think about things in a lot of different places and, and areas Um, And that can get overwhelming and unfocused. And so over the last couple of years, um, I've sort of re-centered on Boston, the Boston tech community in particular, startups um, and sort of initiatives that are in one way or another tied to Boston or the greater Boston area. I love it. That's great. All right. And funny you mentioned Guy Raz. He actually was uh, part of the reason for starting the Second Command podcast. Guy and I have, have spoken a bunch of times at um, the main five-day TED conference. We've been going to TED for years. And I remember speaking to him about six or seven years ago, maybe five years ago. And he'd interviewed a number of CEOs that I actually knew on the How I Built This podcast. But I knew the rest of the story. I'm like, but there's yeah. more there. Like Kendra Scott, I've known Kendra since she was 2 million in revenue. I mean, I knew her before, you know, it was just her mom and another woman packing up jewelry. Now she's like a billion dollar company. And, and there's this whole side of the story that Lon, her CEO, could give. Um, so, I, and I love the guy's perspective of it, and this is supposed to be completely different. So it's funny. That you know, <laughs> that's great. What do you think the, the, it's interesting, Harvard wrote an article, um, or there was an article that appeared in Harvard business review about 15 years ago called the misunderstood role of the COO. And they talked about these seven distinct types of chief operating officers, and you actually carry the president title as well. What do you think is the, the difference between president and COO, or is there much of a difference or, you know, how would you, let's start with that. Yeah, I know that article very, very well, um, because in particular, 
that has been like probably the only thing that was written about the role of a COO for a very long time. Um, there was just like total gap. And then more recently, the last like two or three years, you've certainly gotten more, particularly on the role of a COO in a startup. There are very rabid opinions on whether or not you need one or you don't need one and what that could look like. I actually really like um, sort of the archetypes that Allison Pickens has come up with. She's the COO at Gainsight, for those who maybe don't know her, used to be the COO at Gainsight. Um, and she has a couple of different archetypes that I think are more relevant for tech um, today in particular, which is my lens on this a little bit. Um, for me, uh, the context has been, I started a COO, I, I added the president title as we expanded our own C team because I am sort of truly second in command, I guess. And so the president title was more of an acknowledgement of that status when we have other C-level executives. Um, in the context of my company in particular, it was honestly the most generic of the C-level titles because my role changes a lot. And so um, I, over the years, have run, built or run every part of our business. I started in marketing and sales and more the go-to-market side. Um, for a number of years, I was focused on our customer organization, professional services, customer success. As of next week, I'm shifting entirely and going to be focused on product and engineering again. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's less operations per se and more of kind of another catch-all title that allowed me the flexibility um, of moving my focus and sort of operating very cross-functionally in the business mm -hmm. rather than a specific kind of vertical discipline that I was responsible for. All right. I love that you actually just mentioned the cross-functional versus um, the, the one specific area. And it's funny that you mentioned Allison Pickens. She was uh, our guest on episode number 75. I just dropped the link for you, but I'll put it into our show notes. So, awesome. Yeah, she was a great interview. And it's funny, I, I remembered interviewing her and then she got mentioned about six months ago and I reached out. I'm like, you should be on the podcast. She goes, I was two years ago. Like, Fuck. <laughs> Clearly I'm getting older because I can't remember. This is terrible. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> and I like crawled under my couch and went, oh God, what am I supposed to be doing? I don't even know what I, I probably blamed it on. Like, I'm sorry, maybe it's COVID or something, but honestly, she's someone that I would hear listen to talk twice. So, you know, when, not, not your instincts in the worst place. No, but I'm going to re-listen to it again because you just mentioned her again. And it's, it's, it's hard because I interview so many <clears throat> that I lose sight of some and others. I, I remember very, very clearly, like I had the, um, Sarah, the second in command for Bumble on, and it was just, mm -hmm. such, it's this episode that kind of resonated. And I remember Allison's, but there's some stuff, I guess it was so long ago that I don't, I don't know what I was going through, but I'm going to give it a re-listen. Definitely. You mentioned that, you know, the article well that with the seven different types, do you, do you know what kind of type of COO you would have been based on that Harvard article, or do you want me to throw them out there as a... Yeah, throw them out there. I think I do know which one. I don't remember exactly the language that they would yeah. use, but there yes, was, I definitely know which one I identified with. There was partner and mentor, MVP, um, the... Uh, shit. I used to know these off the top too, and now I'm struggling with what they were. I think change agent. Change agent. Yeah, half, change agent was right? a good one. Were... Yeah, other half. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think also one thing I would say is that my, which one I would characterize myself as maybe has changed a little bit over the mm -hmm. years in my time kind of with the company. Yeah. Um, so I think probably early on, um, I was more kind of like MVP maybe would be sort of the, that one sort of the, like doing yeah. a lot of things, not, it wasn't so much to save me. I think they sort of position it as being like 
we're giving you this title so you don't leave. But more just again, I was kind of an I was kind of an athlete. I'd been at the company when I got the title for about five years and just again had done a lot, been part of our fundraise and sort of all of these things that didn't fit into a particular bucket. Um, So probably MVP is where it began. And then I think probably now, um, you know, I would maybe Bart, my CEO's opinion, sort of the other half or the partner is is probably a better description. Um, When we've done the decisions and things that we've done for the company the last couple of years, um, it has been much more kind of a co-relationship and co-dynamic. But um, I had to grow into that over over the years of working together and playing sort of different um, functional roles relative to him and in the business before I kind of elevated to that partner or other half type of archetype. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you're right that I think it does change because when I came in at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I definitely came in as the mentor because I had built franchise companies already and Brian hadn't. And then it emerged into kind of the MVP where the title switched over um, and partner for sure for the, the last kind of couple or three years. And the it's interesting to kind of think through that transition. Why do you think that they, I mean, I recognize why they put that MVP or why they would give you the title, but I think you even said it. Was it to keep you? Was it something that that mattered? You know, I, this is like a little bit of a chicken or the egg question for me yeah. in the sense that um, I don't care what anyone says. Titles do matter. They are not the end all be all by any means, but it was less honestly, I think about the title relative to the two of us, but more about the perception and the rest of the organization. So, you know, if you are the chief uh, revenue officer and you start, you know, having conversations about product strategy on a daily basis, for the rest of the organization, that might be a little disorienting. Like, aren't you supposed to be focused on this part and now you're over here? So, you know, it's easy in some ways, the title does some of the shorthand work, I think, to sort of explain who you are, especially as you're growing and you don't know everybody, they don't know you. Um, So for me, I think it was maybe more of a formalizing of the ambiguity that is my role and sort of, but also the seniority of it, right? I think it was more of that, Hey, again, shorthand, she has permission to be in these rooms and should be invited into them or whatever kind of context, um, rather than uh, trying to keep me in that way. I think the other part for me that was important about getting it was sort of the all access pass, why I would be in a board meeting and a certain role that I'd have, right? The optics of that. So less for me, it didn't start doing new things for me, but more of a solidifying of what I was doing and wanted to be doing, which gave me a lot more kind of permission runway space to do those kinds of things for a longer term basis. It's interesting. You've talked a couple of times around the, um, the optics and around the cross functions and, you know, having access to different business areas where it doesn't make sense for the, as you said, the chief revenue officer to be in a product meeting or Mark head of marketing to be in a finance meeting. And, and as the COO, we're allowed to be in all the meetings. We're supposed yes. to be often in all the meetings. How do we clarify for internal, like the internal organization, especially as we scale, as we go kind of like the 30 people to 100 and 100 to 300, how do you, is it just the typical roles and responsibilities in org chart? Like, how do you clarify what your responsibilities are and, and how you differ from others on the, C, the C-suite or on the leadership team? Yeah, um, this one, I think, I'm not sure we got, perfectly right at the beginning. I think more trial and error on that. Um, part of it for me was I was employee 17. So um, at least in terms of the credibility that I had with the rest of the organization, 
um, it, it built along with the, the org. I think it is very different if you're coming in to a COO role, maybe at a different stage or precisely because you're in a different stage that you need in some ways to um, preemptively delineate and sort of say, okay, as the CEO, this is what I'm giving this person. What I would say is there's challenges with that. For me, I would almost say that the challenges were the reverse. We probably weren't explicit enough. We sort of took for granted that everybody knows each other and we can kind of operate fluidly. And as we got bigger, right around that 100 mark and where you had a lot more people coming into the organization who didn't have the history, who didn't know sort of how we interacted and how those choices were made, we had to be much more strict about it. And it was actually right around the time um, that we fundraised our B round at the end of 2019 And part of moving into the role was also a responsibilities division. Up to that point, I had been sort of playing the role, but we hadn't solidified it in that way. And it was confusing for me. It was confusing for everybody, especially as we got bigger. And so as part of the title, there was a very deliberate org split where Bart took part and I took another subject to change. We kind of gave ourselves the the room to maneuver, certainly, um, but we we were much more deliberate at that point in time than we had been up until that point. And we might have done ourselves some favors maybe if we had done that a little bit sooner. Um, kind of lesson learned, I think, on that one. I, I agree as well when you said earlier that titles are important, that um, as much as I believe in like a flat org or I even say an upside down org chart where I have the CEO at the bottom supporting the VPs or supporting the employees, I, I do think that titles provide some clarity and, and it, people actually need to understand where they fit, not in terms of like an autocratic dictatorial style, but just where do we fit and, and who do we go to and who's supposed to be doing what for, for the roles and responsibilities. Yeah, I think that one in particular is where I find it most important is like, who do you consult on certain things? And, you know, we may have different answers on some of this and it avoids getting con- people confused of, well, I talked to her and she said one thing and now you're telling me something different. At worst, that creates a lot of animosity and frustration, but at best, it's super inefficient to do it that way. So having that clarity, yeah, as you say, is less about like hard and fast coming down from on high, but more about being available and the right resource that people know where to go so people can move faster mm-hmm. while they're doing their jobs. Tell me um, a little bit about, you mentioned you joined at employee number 17, and then at some point you guys hit the, the 100 mark. Where are you now? And tell us a little bit about Blue Conic. Like, What's the company? What's your product? Who's your ideal customer? What's the size of the business today? Definitely. So um, we are about to hit 170. So I'm about to have hit the 10x milestone from when I started, which is pretty gratifying. Um, I've been now with the company a little over seven years. So seen a couple of these different stages. Um, In terms of the business, we're a pure software company. Um, We sell into marketing and digital kind of customer organizations in companies that people would know like BF Corp, the parent company for Vans and North Face. Um, Heineken, Molson Coors, Colgate. Um, We work with some really awesome brands around the world. And um, when I initially joined, it was because the founders had taken a Series A, but are actually Dutch. They'd moved from the Netherlands to the US to do that fundraise. So we have a very bicultural organization, which is gone beyond those two countries at this point as well. Um, But I was one of very early American hires in addition to being early on um, in the company's overall growth. Um, And so I've been here as we've sort of scaled up from those early days of well under a million in revenue um, through a couple of fundraises now and um, sort of 
focused on this next stage. We took uh, an investment from Vista Equity Partners, their Endeavor Fund, um, which is focused on growth equity companies earlier this year. So kind of gearing up for this next next run, the next sort of three to five years with them. Um, but yeah, I get I mean, part of my, what I love about my job was true for sure when I was an analyst is to talk to some of the smartest people in marketing tech, in digital disruption and innovation at all kinds of cool companies. Um, they're using our technology to help accelerate a lot of initiatives that are key to the next 10 years for them. So we're in a really good place, good time, things around privacy, but a broader digital transformation that COVID has certainly accelerated. Um, so that's been my job sort of internally and externally, being able to interface with kind of both halves of what makes our organization special and sort of the business tech. It's cool. I, I'm intrigued to learn a little bit about some of the Dutch um, differences, other than the fact that are they the typical six foot five, you know, Dutch, like they're all Dutch. Our CEO actually is. Yeah, yeah. he is. He is actually a tall, is like totally archetypical. Yes. It drives me, it drives me, I'm six, four. It drives me crazy. I go over to the Netherlands and I walk, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like you're yeah. all huge humans and I'm they're six, all, four. They're all tall. I mean, like there are some exceptions, but yes, when you meet him, he is like exactly what you would expect in, yeah. in real life. And what's funny, it's funny you said, especially with COVID where we've done so much hiring is like, so many people have no idea how tall anyone was while they were on Zoom. Right. And so Bart in particular had a couple of those who were like, whoa, I'm so used to seeing that guy sitting down. Like he's so much taller than I thought. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had a couple of those moments as well. What's the, what is it like working with the Dutch? What's the, what are their differences? Yeah. You know, I, first of all, if anyone works for a multicultural organization, um, there's a book called The Culture Map by Aaron Meyer that we actually read for book club. We do a book club mm. um, and we read it about, I don't know, maybe a year ago now. And I, it was the book I wish I had when I started working at Bluconic because it does such an amazing job of looking at different dimensions of how cultures build relationships, how they communicate, all these kind of things that are inordinately helpful in a business context. Um, and that I say that because it was very rocky at the beginning. Um, there are a lot of things that are quite different in terms of business styles. Um, we call it Dutch direct. They do not sugarcoat anything. Um, they spend a lot of time on uh, focusing on basically where things need improvement without necessarily talking about what we've done well, which as an American who's used to like trophy first, feedback second, like that was really disorienting at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and then a lot of it was more just, um, you know, again, like sort of just general communication styles, how we think about things. They also just generally are more conservative, a little slower moving than what you might expect from like an American startup or an American tech company. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that really, again, early on, I I don't even know that I knew enough to appreciate that there would be such stark differences. What I think heightened it was you have co-founders who've moved their families, you know, from a new country to here and all of the intensity and stress that I could not have appreciated having not worked in, a, in a, an environment like that before um, really made those challenges or those differences problematic. Like we needed to get past them in order to build that relationship of trust and confidence in each other. Um, and that was really challenging early on in the early days. And we had quite a few very intense kind of pivotal conversations, moments of vulnerability and all of that, that sort of got us to the place we needed to get to, but it was not automatic. It was not, um, it was not a given and really took a lot of openness on both sides. And I think it's been funny because 
Bart and I are sort of the top of the pyramid. We were about 50-50 at sort of every layer in the org from there down. So it does really start with us. And to this day, we've worked together now, you know, every day for seven plus years. And we still have our moments where like, I'm being too American, he's being too Dutch. We got to kind of work that out together. But I think it's actually a really strong part of the organization that we have that friction. Um, It makes us really intentional about what we do. It forces us to maybe confront things that are uncomfortable that maybe other organizations would just gloss over or try to cut out. Um, So it's turned into a little bit of what I think is a superpower, but again, was not a given, not an automatic uh, right out of the gate. That's for sure. Now, does he speak the, the typical five to seven languages as well? The Dutch um, he like flirts and a lot of them sticks mainly with Dutch, but it's funny because we have now folks like who have not just English, the second language, but like three or four others and making sure, especially with zoom and different dynamics that everyone is able to like, Hey, say thanks. If your only language is English, because all <laughs> these people are working so much harder than you are to participate in these conversations, yeah. process information. Um, but it's funny because I actually think in a lot of ways, you know, so much talk about diversity, inclusion, belonging, the fact that we've never had like a homogenous environment was actually really valuable for us as we for added sure. folks from all kinds of walks of life. We've never had a meeting where everyone talks the same, looks the same, is the same. And that's left a lot of room for other kind of vectors of of diversity to fit in really well. Um, Not something we knew from the jump that that would be the case, but has really been valuable as we've scaled and really been intentional about those kind of um, initiatives and incorporating new new people into the org. Oh, for sure it would be. Um, I'm intrigued about, you mentioned that you really had to work at building trust. Can you give me a a specific thing, a a tool or a system? I know you said you had to have some very vulnerable and open conversations. Is that, was that just it? Is that what it was? Is just being open and vulnerable and throwing it all out there and letting it build or? I really do think it's that. Um, And, and I'll give you a very, this sort of maybe the most pivotal moment in this was about a year and a half after I started working there, we had just built up a lot of tension within the management team. There was just just a lot of frustration on both sides, just ill communication, felt very kind of insular, like an us and them kind of dynamic. And um, we had our a management team offsite. And one of the um, activities was to have everyone write on like a whiteboard or whatever, you know, something we're doing well, something we're not doing well, an obvious area for improvement and like something else doesn't matter. So we all got a couple minutes, three Dutch folks, three Americans on the team at the time. Um, and for the, something we wrote it up on the board and for something we're doing well, Bart literally wrote the word nothing. Like that's what he wrote. And I went ballistic. <laughs> I like, I, not because like I said to him, then what the fuck are we all doing here? Yeah. If I can't, if I'm busting my ass, I'm doing, I'm doing the best I know how to do that may not be good enough. And I'm totally fine with you telling me that. But if, if I'm missing, then why are we pretending? Like, I don't, I don't know how to get around this. What was fascinating was his response was he was shocked that I took it so personally, not just like, how upset I was and how offended, which I think ultimately made him realize how much I cared about business and cared about what we were doing, but also like didn't intend it to be that vicious. Like I sort of took it as this maximal assault on my work ethic and all the things that we're doing. 
And for him, it like, that was a, just a very Dutch response. We were early stage. There's so much work to be done. And from his perspective, nothing is done at the level that he wanted it at. And that just opened up what happened from there was like a two and a half hour just airing of how frustrated the Dutch team was with us and our expectations for pot, like constant feedback and whatever, which was just totally unfamiliar to them. And we expressed how difficult it was. Like, we're trying to do a good job for you guys and for this team. And we don't know how we're doing. We can't figure out what that's going to look like. And so I think that was an example of, you know, the vulnerability of, of all of us to sort of share what was painful to talk about that and a willingness to work together and keep talking about it. Um, I think that for me is the biggest thing is that you, nothing is ever going to go perfectly smoothly. You're kind of deluding yourself if it, if you think it is. So keeping that stuff top of mind, gut checking each other, sort of figuring out a way to communicate like that mm. um, without that, I certainly wouldn't still be there. It would have been untenable. We would have just, you know, we all would have been in each other's ways forever. Um, and instead, you know, look, look where we are now kind of thing. But I think that vulnerability, the willingness to have the conversations and put it out there without that on all sides of whatever the discussion is, it's, you're just, you're, you're dead in the water. Well, and it's interesting, like um, Pat Lencioni in Five Dysfunctions, a team calls about the absence of trust and the fear of conflict, right? The artificial harmony. And, and you guys have really worked through that and, and you need to have that healthy conflict. How do you have conflict with the CEO when you're the COO, president and COO? How do you two have that good, healthy conflict when there's leadership team members around or if you're at a board meeting or do you try to have the conflict outside of those doors and, and be kind of a united front when you're inside those walls? Yeah, very much the second. And I, you know, we we have had many, the two of us have had many very difficult conversations, sort of existential about our role. Can we keep partnering together? Is this the right dynamic? All of these things um, over the years, uh, never, ever, ever with an audience. Like it is so important to us because ultimately the, the thing that we've been able to build our dynamic on top of that trust comes from a place of believing that at the end of the day, we a hundred percent, everything we're doing is a hundred percent about Luconic and about the business. So even if I rabidly disagree or he rabidly disagrees, if you believe a hundred percent that you would never do anything to, to do bad for the company, that's the middle ground, even if it sometimes feels like a tiny island. And so we meet on that island, like sometimes we need to sort of, um, let the water come down a little bit before we do. Um, but we, we try to have those, especially if they're more of the interpersonal kind of bigger things, certainly. Um, and then sometimes, you know, in there is, there's a version also of the good conflict that does happen out in public with the rest of the management team where, you know, we disagree with each other. I think the key is knowing when it, when it is escalating too far and when we need to just pause for now, step away and then resolve the differences another time. Um, and I think that just kind of comes with working together, uh, over a long period of time, but I would, yeah, neither one of us would ever, ever want to have something that shakes everyone's confidence in our leadership, quite frankly. Right. I mean, some of that stuff is too much information too too visible and is not good for the rest of the company to see. Um, but it's, we have to have it and actually in order for us to kind of keep moving forward and making sure that we stay on the same page. Yeah, very much. 
Um, how did you and the CEO decide or, or split roles? You, you mentioned that you split roles and you left it open to kind of change later if you needed to. How did you originally decide how to shift or split up the roles and responsibilities? And then have you, um, you know, redistributed those at all over the last couple of years? Yeah, part of it is, I mean, probably most of it is just driven by what the business needed at the moment and um, then deriving kind of who's the right fit based on skill sets. So, for example, um, I really enjoy interviewing, hiring, sort of being part of that. So when I took over the whole customer organization or the half of the business I took over back in 2019, was customer success writ large that included things like professional services, support, account management, CSMs, et cetera, and then also the people function. And in both of those cases, that was three management team level hires that needed to be made. So they were, I was running them, but I needed to hire those three people. Um, Whereas at the time, the part of the business that he was sort of running had the key pieces in place. And so that's where he focused. that's just been one example of kind of where does it make sense to split these things up um, in other previous times, though, like when I was more close to the go to market side of things, it was when we were sort of building a category. It was a lot more leadership and sort of needing to figure out product market fit. And as the former forest journalist who knows this market and sort of was responsible for that, being super close to the pulse of those things and what our RFPs are saying and all of that kind of stuff was really critical, actually, to me sort of filling that role. So a lot of it is just very much time dependent, context dependent on what what is needed by that part of the business when um, and which of us is sort of better suited skill set wise to, to do that well for, you know, the next 12 to 18 months, typically is sort of how we think in those types of those Mm -hmm. increments. And have you been there for during the series A and series B, or did you come on after the series A? Right after the series A. Yeah. I was the, I think one of the first hire, fourth hire after the series A. So how has the company changed then just during the series B even, or, or just even coming in in that initial stage when you've got funding, what's, what's changed in the company? How have you had to operate differently? Uh, You know, what's the good and the bad? (laughs) I mean, it's it's not even so much finance round dependent as it has been um, like some of those kind of key milestones of finding product market fit. You sort of can see it in the graphs and the data over the years of like this was the moment when the flywheel started to really build um, in the very early days, that sort of series A timeframe you know, a lot of it was just figuring out what resonated in the market and trying to be as scrappy as possible while not um, not doing things that could never scale, but just sort of making pragmatic trade-offs about what needed to happen there. But it was mostly, you know, experimentation, trying to, you know, use the cliche, fail fast without it being an abject failure, right? I think for me, fail fast has always meant stop doing something quickly, even if it's objectively a failure, the thing that makes it not a fail is just that you learned from it, right? So mm-hmm. we failed a lot, <laughs> like without a doubt, we would, I would argue objective failure, but we learned from it and sort of, hey, how do we make sure that we are smarter going going forward? Um, so a lot of that, probably the biggest thing I've noticed in the three sort of financing stages, so series A to B, B to Vista, and now in the few months since the Vista investment, um, is a lot to do with just the people that are successful at each one of those stages and who you need doing what kinds of jobs um, as the company grows and scales. And some people are so good at being sort of Swiss army knives or whatever, and just can do a lot of things, but they can't 
hit the level when they start to do sort of specialization, right? Or they do have to yeah. focus. Um, and I imagine many of you have read or seen the um, giving away your Legos piece by Molly Graham in first round review. That is like my Bible. I read that a couple of years in and was mm-hmm. like, oh, this just names the thing that is so hard about this. Um, so that is probably the most obvious place of change and what's what's been honestly, some of the hardest conversations to be fair, but also some of the most gratifying. I mean, I remember the days where we didn't even have people applying to work here. And now we have this, and like we have thousands of applicants coming in on a monthly, it's like, that blows my mind. (laughs) The sort of things that we see on the other side. Um, So that's been really different. I think also, you know, most notably a lot of it is sort of how, um, how agile you can be. And it's not that you stop trying to be agile, but just you, I use the mantra right now, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. You have to take the time at this size to slow down, to write it down, to double check the question, right? To not just run as fast as you can, Mm. pause, consider it. And that is going to make us faster later. So that I would never have said that in the early days, just fast is fast in the early days, right. but now we sort of need to have a different mindset. So that's, you know, those are the kind of things I see changing the most, you know, as we've hit those pivotal kind of moments over the last couple of years. I love that. I love that whole smooth is, is fast. The, um, where are you focusing your time now? And, and I, I love that you also mentioned how, how much easier it is now to get employees as you're bigger. So there's all, another segue question in there that I'll ask in a second. Yeah. Where are you focusing your time currently? Yeah. So um, I, I have what I think of as sort of my horizontal and then my vertical responsibility. So as I said, vertical responsibilities, um, I have given full ownership of the customer organization to our far better than I was at it. Chief customer officer, uh, that sort of officially that transition is done. Um, so I'm going to start focusing more again on product and engineering, um, within sort of my day to day vertical responsibilities. I still own the people function as well. So all of HR people ops, those kind of things, um, still ladder up to me. Um, and then what I consider to be my horizontal responsibilities are things around the management team, making sure that um, we're hiring key roles. I play a very active role in hiring really across the whole company. Um, I don't interview everyone at this point, but I come darn close and very close to that process, how we think about that. Um, diversity, equity, inclusion, I mentioned is sort of, I'm the executive sponsor for making sure that we're thinking about that in the right ways and doing the right things there. Um, obviously working with the board and, you know, the company vision, right. Overall, that can't be just run from one part of the organization. So even though I have that vertical component, um, that I still want to be on calls with customers. I still want to see what's coming in in RFPs and part of what makes me, um, I think good at what I do is I'm, I genuinely love all of it. I'm super curious about every part of the business and learning what I can and sort of putting it together. On the other hand, I'm, I'm hyper aware of how that needs to, to sort of diminish and become a little bit more focused as we get bigger and have those people in seats. But we're not quite at that point yet. I think we're probably 12 to 18 months from me needing to be f- almost fully vertical because we have kind of the key pieces right. and everyone's onboarded. Um, so that's, you know, like I said, 12 to 18 months probably looks very different than, than right this minute. But um, that's how I split my time today. 
So at the stage you're at right now, you're clearly starting to bring in some senior seasoned talent from the outside and they're coming in over top of two or three layers of people mm -hmm. that have been there for a few years. How do you navigate that? How do you help them do that without causing too many ripples? So we um, think a lot about in our onboarding and sort of our first 90 days, and I don't know if this is necessarily unusual, but we are like rabid proponents of what we call new kid goggles. You only get one chance to see this business with fresh eyes and then you are in it. And so we really, really do stress that people spend their first 30, 45, 60, 90 days absorbing. And for senior leaders, that is difficult. They want to have an impact quickly. They often feel out of water, right? And the way that they feel like they can reorient themselves is doing what they used to do and doing it here as sort of a comfort or a kind of a, a comfort animal. Um, we we don't want you to do that actually. And, and you will sit in that discomfort. We're going to help you get through it. Um, but coming in and just immediately starting to make change is not how you tend to be successful here. And so, um, you know, as we bring that in, the benefit of it is that people can really spend time just absorbing and learning and taking that in. Um, I like for me, I haven't had new kid goggles in seven years. Like they, right. you, you can be, I, I benefit from what you tell me that I haven't seen afresh and never can again. Um, but what I think the other impact of that is, and it's sort of mutual for the folks who are already here, it allows them to also adjust to the presence of a new person before they start making those changes. And so it's it's building awareness and comfort with each other rather than feeling like someone's going to come in and within two weeks has a new org chart, you know, or has totally taken us off in a different direction. Um, and so I think that helps everyone, especially at this stage too, where we, we employ a lot of people who built the thing, right? Or are, this is their baby, you know, one piece of the business. They may not want to be the one who becomes the VP or the director. They like seeing an individual contributor, Probably. but they're also really proud of it and are not just going to hand it off to just next Joe Schmo because I said so. And so I think that initial kind of onboarding period that is so focused on taking it all in, absorbing, being patient, letting yourself be uncomfortable shows to me that you have the curiosity, you have the humility. Those are two core values of ours to just see how we do things and then start to figure out right the right places in the right time. That's very much in the slowest, smooth, smooth as fast. I assure you, if you slow down in your first couple of months with us, you will go faster for longer than if you try to, you know, hit the hit the gas as soon as you get here. And I think that helps on both sides of the equation long term. Yeah, I love that for sure. Um, all right. Two more questions. One is I'm curious around, you, you mentioned a couple of times your prior role with Forrester. So as an analyst, what do you think has served you well with that kind of experience in the COO world? God, so much. I am so grateful for the time I spent at Forrester, um, which was a very unexpected place for me professionally. I did not sort of envision really anything of what I ended up doing, but my role at Forrester, um, it was, it was a couple of things. One is it's, it's like an MBA concentrated. You're actually talking to the best and biggest brands in the world. You're hearing about their problems. You're working with analysts who are brilliant when you first start. Um, so you get just such a wide lens on so many things that are going on in industry and sort of the cutting edge. As an analyst specifically, you know, part of the job is systems thinking and, and hearing, having an interview with 10 or 12 different companies and brands and 
then distilling a story from that, like that's executive leadership in really critical ways. What is happening in all the different parts of the business, crafting a vision, crafting the strategy from what you see from the market, right? It's a lot of input and effectively articulating an output from there and doing mm. that consistently um, and intelligently and effectively. And that's that's what being an analyst is. And the, the only thing about being an analyst that I sort of stopped enjoying is that the job itself doesn't change. Like it's it's sort of, you know, your research doesn't really change too, too dramatically and the outputs that you're expected to create in a company, that's obviously not true, right? The, out, the inputs are changing so often all the right. time. Um, you need to be ahead of it in a lot of ways. And then how you tell the story, knowing when the story needs to change, all of those kind of things um, are directly related. I am so much more effective as a leader in my role because of my training, so to speak, in thinking rigorously and concisely and directly, which is a hallmark of Forrester analysts. And so all of that was super valuable. And then of course, part of why I got the job in the first place was that I was, you know, a subject matter expert in what I was covering at Forrester. And that's the industry that the company was in. So I've had the really dual benefit of getting to be sort of an in, an operator in a very real way as I've grown with the company, but it started at a much more kind of externally facing function, positioning, product marketing, that kind of stuff. So I've, I've gotten probably more of a 360 of a company than most get to just yeah. by virtue of kind of the intersection of that, which was all Forrester. That's very cool. All right. I want to go back to the 22-year-old Corey. I want you to give yourself some advice. What advice would you give the 22-year-old just starting out on her career that you know to be true today? Be, I would say two parts, they're related. Um, be patient and look for gray. Um, I think the, the last two years in particular has taught me so much about um, needing to kind of eyes on your own paper and take the information and be comfortable with it and don't just act. Um, one of my favorite academics is this woman, Tressie McMillan Cotton, who talks about how everything is true at a certain level of abstraction. And I have found that to be day to day now, what I need to remind myself of is that, you know, I know the business, I don't know everything, but you need to have the patience to sort of not get distracted by what everyone else says is happening in the industry or how you're supposed to respond to a global pandemic or any of those things and find truisms that are actually true for you and your context and your organization. Um, and that takes patience that 22 year old me didn't have. And it takes a willingness to sit in that discomfort and find that gray and that nuance that 22 year old me definitely didn't have. I'm not sure 30 year old me had it, but let's, let's focus on 22. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Corey Munchbach, the COO and president for Blue Conic. Thanks very much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.